Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. If you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Chris. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the guest that we have today. I mean, he's um, now in this rocket ship that we're going to hear all the details about, but uh, he's been managing, you know, and being the CEO of companies for many, many, many years. So I think that you're going to find, you know, his story very inspiring. And uh, and again, I don't want to make anyone wait any longer. So let's welcome our guest today, Craig Hulbert. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. It's great to be with you today. So originally born in Montana. So, um, you know, I'm sure that that was uh, quite a beautiful upbringing, you know, there with the scenery and everything. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane, Craig. How was life growing up? Well, yeah, thank you. It, Montana was and is a beautiful place. Uh, and I'd say the people there are very uh, centered on simple things like family and, and, and especially when I was growing up. Uh, we had a, a very large dryland wheat farm uh, in the middle of what's called northeastern Montana. I lived in the city during the winter, and then I'd spent my summers on the farm. And I would say everything that's happened to me since then can be rooted back to uh, really farming and what I learned on the farm and how to behave. 
uh, which was really just hard work, do the job right, you know, pay attention, be good to people. And, uh, and when you shake someone's hand, that means something. So, you know, I'm extremely thankful for my time growing up. I have amazing parents and grandparents and brothers and sisters and, and, uh, just had a very, very, very solid upbringing that I think provided me a great foundation to succeed in life. Now, in your case, I mean, it sounds like golf, you know, was the uh, ticket, the ticket to school. So tell us, how did you get into into golf and how were you able to develop it to a point where, you know, that got you the ticket to getting into school? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. My family was athletic. My dad had signed a contract with the Philadelphia Phillies in the 50s uh, to pitch. Uh, and, you know, my mom was athletic as well. So we kind of grew up in an athletic family. And in the winters in Montana, that's kind of what you did. Um, and I was really more of a basketball player than a golfer, but uh, a few of the summers in my high school years, I spent a lot of time playing golf and I had some natural ability and yeah, golf's been a lifelong friend for me and something that I count on and, and really was, uh, the key to get me out of Montana. Actually, after high school, I went South, I ended up at San Diego state, um, and had an opportunity to enjoy the nicer weather and really expand my horizons a little bit past kind of. Uh, a little more sheltered Montana life uh, to kind of see the world a little bit, which was very, I think, extremely good for me at that stage of my life. How do you think that that competitive spirit has served you over time? Oh, wow. I mean, I can't understate how important that is. I think all of us, you know, and I've watched many of your past episodes. I think all of us are competitors to some degree or another. And I can feel the fire burning almost every day, which is one of the reasons why I'm still doing this, Alejandro, is getting that feeling of, you know, competing. You know, I was just at the largest trade show in Orlando uh, last week and seeing, you know, all the customers and the competition and, you know, there, there's a lot to, to be excited about and I can feel the fire in the belly for sure. And in your case, I mean, typically it takes a little bit of time for people to, you know, get their studies, college, then they do the MBA. I mean, it sounds in your case, you did it right away. So what was that the case? Yeah. I mean, I think I had an opportunity uh, right out of college. I went to work for Ford Motor in their financial program, which was very touted at that point in time. Uh, and they had a tuition assistance program. So I decided uh, I would just work and go to school for a couple of years, which I did. And I loved school. I was very close to just continuing on getting a PhD and maybe teaching um, because I love the, the university atmosphere so much. Uh, but I decided as I got my MBA, I got a job in an investment bank and that was really exciting. And that's back when you would work, you know, days and nights sleeping in the office and doing crazy things like that. But I learned so much there. Uh, you know, after I graduated with my MBA, it was such a great experience, a bunch of young people, all very passionate, doing fun deals. And uh, that was, again, a really important time in my life to kind of set me up for my future, because I saw probably probably valued about 50 businesses in a couple of years. And what were you seeing on 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 being able to kind of like separate and put them in the bucket of the businesses that were good from the ones that were not so good. What were, what were some of, because obviously, I mean, in your case, you've done it all. I mean, you've been an operator now, a private equity investor, investment banking. So I guess when it comes to the pattern recognition, you know, especially on the investment banking side, I mean, what were you able to develop on being able to see what works from what doesn't when it comes yeah. to business? Such an important question. 
And I think for all of the listeners, this is a critical question. And I can boil it down to three main places. First one is people. Technology is getting better and better, but it still comes down to people. When you go into a business, and I'll give you a good example, uh, one of the businesses I valued was the folding bleacher company. They had the, the, every high school has the bleachers that automatically come down. You have a little key and put it. These were the guys that came up with that whole idea. And I remember I was a basketball player and they said, Hey, um, have you ever played basketball? I'm like, yeah, I was a, I was a good basketball player in high school. And they said, bring your basketball stuff. So we had our meeting. It started at noon. I thought we were going to have a lunch meeting and they had a basketball court in their offices and we ended up playing hoop for like an hour and a half. And I met the, the CEO, their salespeople, their operate, all of them were playing basketball. And what I learned was that team was so close knit and so excited about what they were doing. There was just no way that business was ever going to fail. Um, and they had a great, the sex. So people's the first one. Second one is you got to have a value proposition. You've got to be able to have something that people want. And then the third thing is you've got to be able to earn a profit doing it. And many people fit, forget the third piece. They get so excited about the first two and then they realize, oh my God, I can't convert top line to bottom line and make a profit. So if you don't have those three things to some degree or another all lined up, you're going to have a problem in your business. And so that's the, those were the three things I learned very early on in my career. Find people that are passionate, have a value proposition that people want, and then be able to make economics work. So for you, it sounds like landing a GE was very impactful in your career. And obviously you landed there as a result of an acquisition. So walk us through the events that unfolded there and, and, and then also why was GE so impactful in your career? Yeah. GE at the time was run by Jack Welch. Jack Welch at that time was widely believed to be the greatest CEO in the world. And GE was widely believed to be the greatest company in the world. So when we got, when we got acquired into GE, I think the first thing that surprised me was how much talent there was everywhere, everywhere in all four corners of that business. And then how financial everybody was. In other words, they were really focused on that third piece I was just talking about is the economics of the business. And so what happened to me at GE was we got involved in a business that grew very quickly. And I had for the first time really a global responsibility selling a business that we had just kind of built called the, the long-term service agreement business inside the power, power side, where we were selling service agreements along with gas turbines all over the world. And I built the sales team from about four of us to over 130 when I left. And my last quarter of GE, we did a billion dollars in backlog for General Electric. So we had built a machine that was just throwing off profitability and orders. And I think what I learned when I was there was I had something that was a little bit different. And that was, I was very good with people. I could get people excited about um, accomplishing something big. And so when we were doing that and closing deals literally all over the globe, I was traveling everywhere. What I learned was, wow, what an amazing company that GE was at that time. It's now obviously suffered. But I also learned something at GE that I didn't like. And that was, you know, um, I think for the first time in my career, I didn't respect everybody above me. 
Um, they were way out of balance and I didn't want to be like that. So basically I spent three and a half years at GE. I learned everything I needed to learn on how to behave as an executive. And I'm extremely thankful for my time there because it really set me up to be a very productive executive. So for you, PIC Group was next. So uh, at what point did you realize, hey, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture out and I'm going to go at it. And I'm going to start being CEO of companies because that, that was quite a, 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 an extensive path in your career. Yeah, it, it was. And I think this is where maybe my time in that investment bank, being around all of those entrepreneurs and seeing what they were doing in, you know, quote unquote, small companies relative to GE. What I learned was I was really an entrepreneur. And I had just spent three, three and a half years with GE. I really learned everything I felt I could learn. And I was, my next logical step was to be a CEO. And the PIC group was a smaller company in the power industry. I knew all the customers, had a good feel for what was going on. And so that was my first step out. And I was, you know, as I look back, I'm really proud of myself for taking that step because the, 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 path of least resistance would have been just to stay at GE. I was an up and comer at GE. I was what they called a high pot, which is a high potential executive. So I had a lot of potential there, but I really wanted to get out and build something on my own. Um, and I remember uh, at GE, they had this thing called a dial com system. You could dial five numbers and get to anyone at GE on your phone. And so, you know, When I got to the pick and I had this international tax problem, I picked my phone up. This is about six months into my CEO. And I dialed the five numbers to get to the GE tax guy that I'd used so many times. But I didn't, I wasn't attached to the dial com system. I was my own company. I'm like, oh my God, I got to go solve that tax issue on my own now, which I went out and did. I didn't have access to all of the resources that GE had. So I think that made me realize to be successful as a CEO in a smaller company, you got to be scrappy. You've got to be what I would say, double down on all your humility and everything else. So with PIC Group, you know, obviously that was the, um, the segue into your next one, which, which was TAS Energy. Now, in this case, you know, like how, how has it been uh, really to, to, to be part or to really understand the full cycle Uh, as an operator, because on those companies, you also had the opportunity of really seeing what it takes to bring the company to the finish line. And that is not easy. But once you see how it works, it's kind of like now you have full visibility. So how was that for you? So at TAS was very interesting. I joined TAS. We had about 15 employees. I remember we used to stand in a semicircle and everybody we could see everybody. And then We had this technology that we invented called turbine in the chilling, which was basically air conditioning for a gas turbine. We did a bunch of those things. And as you mentioned, that kind of went out of flavor. And so we had to kind of pivot into something else. We ended up in the data center space and doing commercial cooling and then also in the data center space. So we sold TAS as a business doing something completely different than what we started the business with. And so That's that cycle of paying attention to the company and your customers and not getting stuck doing one thing. And so what the lesson learned there was, was that there are going to be highs and lows in every business. Keep focused on the value proposition and the economics and always have a bunch of talent around you. I remember our first data center 
opportunity uh, came to us. And it took us seven years to get our first PO out of that data center customer. And then for about 10 years after that, we did about a billion dollars with that customer. So hanging in there, winning them over on what the value proposition of going our direction was, and then watching the business kind of take off into a different direction. But seeing it monetized, seeing what it did for the employees and for the shareholders, it's the word that I use is exhilarating because you build something and then it moves on and inures into the future under different leadership. It's very exciting. And at what point do you realize it's time to do an exit? You know, that's really a trick. And, and I'll bring this concept in. I ha have had an amazing network my whole life. When I became CEO, I was very young. So most of my friends that were that age, you know, I had to get new friends that were maybe a little more serious. So I was in my 30s. Most of my new friends were in their 50s that were running companies. And now that I'm, you know, 60, they're 80. So I've been able to benefit from a great network of people that have been able to help me make those decisions. But honestly, I think what a lot of CEOs lose somewhere along the way is their gut and their humility on what's really going on and being honest about the situation. And I think for us, it was clear to us that it was getting bigger. The, the capital needs were more serious. And it was getting harder and harder to do it as a privately held business. So we ended up selling TAS to Comfort Systems, which is a larger, what I'll call a publicly traded company with a very efficient capital structure. And they have layered TAS into their business because they didn't have a data center part of their business inside of their overall cooling business. So it was a perfect transition for the employees and the shareholders. This ad is brought to you by ShipStation. I mean, I remember when I was saying, doing my book, my previous book, you know, it was incredible, like how much of a nightmare, you know, like shipping all those books to everyone, you know, during the launch was, was it, was, it was really tough. Now, you know, there's this company, it's called ShipStation that sets you up for growth directly by integrating every shopping cart and storefront so that your products are easier to find, easier to manage, uh, easier to get into the hands of the happy customers. So there's no more limiting your business. You can actually right now maximize your sales and save times with consolidated order management and automated shipping updates for your customers. So ship more and grow with ShipStation. Go to ShipStation.com today and sign up with promo code DEALMAKERS to a free 60-day free trial. Start today and get to set up before the biggest shipping season of the year. That's two months free. Visit ShipStation.com and click the microphone at the top and type in code DEALMAKERS. I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on 
when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now for you, uh, one thing that you did is you went to the other side of the table, you know, which is uh, very, you know, interesting because once you get a good taste of the operating side, you know, transitioning to the investor side is not easy. Now in your case, you know, you went to the investor side and now back to the operating side, but but what led you to the investment side? So I think it's my passion for entrepreneurs at the end of the day. And Alejandro, it's not too much different than what you're doing with your podcast. You're giving resources to the founders to understand how to run their business more efficiently. I feel like there's a huge gap out there, and I believe you must feel this way too. Many founders are just left alone to figure it out on their own. And maybe they have a network or this or that. But we started Brightmark Partners, our private equity firm, with the sole intention to help entrepreneurs monetize their companies and to think about the business backwards from a monetization event. So when we would meet an entrepreneur, they'd be super excited about their business. And then I would say to them, what do you want to do with your company? Well, we're going to do this and this product and that. No, no, no. What do you want for your family, for you? from this company. Oh, well, one day I'll sell it. Well, when? Well, I mean, five to seven years, let's say. Okay. So in five to seven years, you're going to sell your company. What does your company need to look like to be really valuable? Well, I don't have any idea, but I know my customers. I know my product. I know my factories. Yeah. But you don't know how to monetize your business at the top dollar. So Brightmark would go in, find entrepreneurs, and then help them build the business backwards from the monetization event and knowing what they would need to really get, you know, the highest multiple they could get. And so that's what we did at Brightmark and had, you know, many success stories. It's exhilarating working with entrepreneurs, as you know, and frustrating too at times, because many times you can see around the corner, they can't see around and, you know, they end up running right into the wall. You're like, well, I tried to tell you there was that wall there, you know, so I think um, helping entrepreneurs is why we started uh, Brightmark, and then we would we would work with them to monetize the company. Now, for you, I mean, you guys were doing that for quite a while. I mean, you were doing it for seven years. So um, you know, obviously, at that point, you know, you've you've developed the operation well, is 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 well engineered, and you know, at one point, you decide that they perhaps you know is. You, you, you were not finding what you were looking for. And that's essentially what triggered you to, to start, you know, your, your baby now local bounty. But one question that I want to ask you is now that you had the opportunity of being on the investment side for over seven years, how do you think, you know, now being on the operating side, how, how do you think your perspective has changed when looking at investors? Because you've been there. Yeah. I mean, I think I have a better understanding of what they're, 
they're trying to do and kind of the challenges that they have on their side, not having been inside the belly of, of, of making those decisions. So, I mean, I, I think I always kind of thought like that, but now it's a little bit more clear. And so, you know, they're looking for a business that, you know, will allow them to earn a nice return. So, you know, when I was at TAS, we raised money from Kleiner Perkins uh, and many other private equity people along the way. So some of the very fancy people down to some of the folks that, you know, were maybe smaller, like a Brightmark uh, and raising capital kind of up and down that, that list. So I got to see a lot of that. So inside of Brightmark, I think what we learned and was, you know, we were looking for operators that kind of shared our values and shared what, what we felt was going to lead to success. And that kind of is, as I mentioned, it's fun, but it's also frustrating. So there's sometimes that, you know, a business could be so much, but the founder can't get out of the way for whatever reason, uh, could be a lot of different reasons. Um, and we saw that several times in businesses that we invested in and businesses that we did not invest in. And so I think, our goal is to not get in the way of what the business could be uh, and not get, not be the impediment to having the company be all that it can be. Now, ideas take time to incubate, you know, and they're kind of like doorman. You know, now in your guys' case, it sounded like you were looking to invest in a company. And as a result of not being able to finding one, you ended up, you know, starting your own and shifting gears. So, I mean, that's quite a an incredible shift in gears. So, so walk us through the sequence of events to really bringing local bounty to life. Yeah. So Brightmark's going and investing and sitting on boards and growing. We've monetized. We're doing all kinds of, we had a lot of moving parts inside of Brightmark. And we were constantly looking for like the next big thing. And we had identified two areas we wanted to invest in. One was ag tech and one was energy storage. Those were the two big themes we were looking behind. And so when we started studying ag tech, the controlled environment agriculture space popped out at us. And this is about four years ago now, Alejandro. So we started digging in and doing research on the CEA space under the complete hope of being able to invest in one. And so we spent about six months, we had MBAs working with us and we spent about six months and two things came out after that six months of due diligence. The first one was we were more excited about CEA after we were done than when we started. And so we view the space at that point in time as 100% inevitable as it relates to what consumers wanted. So that was exciting. The second thing was not so exciting. We couldn't find a business we felt was investable. And so long story short, Travis and I looked at each other and we said, we've been operators. We know how to operate. The business model from the world we come from, energy and the controlled environment agriculture space, they're almost the exact same business model other than you're producing a commodity over here in the energy space used for something and a commodity over here for human consumption in the controlled environment agriculture but it's capital intensive and it's a commodity-based business. So we know this business model inside and out. And yet none of the management teams we're talking about are talking about it like a capital intensive commodity-based business. 
So it was such a big opportunity. It was so, to us, so big that we said, I don't think we can take that team and work with them enough to get them over the hump. We need to start from scratch. And we literally, within about two weeks, looked at each other, slept on it, and made the decision and have run down the path for the last three and a half years. That's incredible. Now, in that case, you know, especially for the people that, that are listening to be able to get it, what ended up being the business model of local bounty? How do you guys make money? I, I got to give a little bit of background and then I'll, I'll answer that question directly. Go for it. So from the moment we decided to start the company to today is about three and a half, four years. We're now traded on the New York Stock Exchange. We're now in over 10,500 grocery stores and we've got uh, 250 employees, facilities in the Northwest, California, and the East Coast. So we've made a tremendous amount of progress in the last three and a half years. And oh, by the way, we rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. So all of that's happened in a short period of time. How do we make money? The way farming, especially with perishables, has been done in the past is it's grown in a field in Salinas, California, or Arizona, or some in Mexico. Then it goes through a long, it gets harvested, it gets triple washed, it goes into the cold chain, and it ends up in your grocery store in Minneapolis or Ohio or, or New York City or Florida, okay? That process is very rough on the product, and that's why all of us have thrown away so much produce in the past lettuces and herbs and things of that nature because they just don't last as long because they've been on a tremendous a journey. Our value proposition is we grow delicious products at the same price point as traditional farmers and we grow them in local communities inside of two to 400 miles of where the consumer would be. It's why we named the company Local Bounty. It allows us to grow the product harvest the product, get it into a distribution center the same day we harvest it or the next day, and then into the grocery store very, very quickly. Cutting down on all of the sustainability food miles and all the washing and all the cold chain and all of that, that non-sustainability stuff, growing it with 90% less water, 90% less land, and delivering to the consumer a more delicious product that's more sustainably grown that will last longer in your fridge. Our lettuce can last three to five weeks in your fridge because it just hasn't been on the long journey that the other product has been on. So as it relates to how Local Bounty makes money, we build facilities, we grow product, we distribute it to retailers, consumers buy it. And through that process, Local Bounty has a positive gross margin and will be profitable in... A, about the 2024 timeframe, early 2024. Now, in your guys' case, Craig, you know, the journey of capitalizing the company has been a little bit different from like the, perhaps, you know, the typical startup that gets VCs and then keep going through rounds. How did you guys go about capitalizing the business and what has been the experience going through all those cycles too? Right. So again, learning from the energy world, here's what we learned. When you're proving out a technology, because we invented a new technology that delivers one and a half to two times the yield of existing technology and very, very cost effectively. So basically, when we were thinking about capitalization, 
because we've been in that space where you got to do a round, an A round, B round, C round, D round. You end up in an E round somewhere you're fully diluted and, you know, it's no fun at all. We did an original round with a very small group of friends and Travis and I. And basically that round was des designed to prove out our technology. Okay. Now remember, we're in a capital intensive business. So we know that's not going to be the ultimate way to get to profitability, to get to a capital structure that makes sense. And right about when we're proving everything out plus plus, we realize we could go public via a, a SPAC. And we made the decision to do that in early 2021, let's say late 2020, early 2021. And the reason to go public is to get access to big pools of capital for us to really deploy our technology around the US and ultimately around the world. And so our whole goal was to get public, to get access to capital, to prove out that our business model works, which we're in the process of. We've had three quarters of meeting expectations. Uh, and so um, that's why we ended up going out that way. And so we only had an A round and then we did some convert that got us through to the SPAC and then the SPAC got us out in a big way. Now you're saying that it gives you access to, you know, big pools of capital and, you know, there's a lot of people that, that for them, this is pretty new, uh, Craig. So I think that, you know, it would be great, you know, if you could walk the listeners through what those pools are, of capital are, and then what's the typical process of going from a series A directly into being a publicly listed company, because typically, you know, on what people are listening, what they're used to is going from series A, B, C, D, and then, you know, the IPO. So obviously in this case, it's very unique the way that you guys went about it. So could you walk us in, in a little bit more double clicking on that? I don't think we could have taken from where we were to this, to going public without having the deep level of knowledge that we had inside of our four walls. So for a typical entrepreneur to go from round A to a publicly traded company would be a very heavy lift. Um, but I think because we have been on both sides of the equation, operators, investors, et cetera, we can maybe truncate that cycle a little bit. Now, I say all of that to say, Bankers help. They play a role in getting that, getting kind of your story corrected and getting, you know, getting yourself out there. Um, so there was there was an element of bankers helping. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're the CEO, I don't care how big your company is, you have a responsibility to how however many employees you have and to the opportunity, whatever, whoever the shareholders are, to really understand your options for capitalization. And they typically fall in four or five pools. There's venture capital, there's private equity, there's high net worth individuals, there's what I would call maybe this whole movement around sustainability dollars, and then there's going public or the public markets, right? So those are kind of the five pockets. You need to understand how each of those work and the pros and cons of each. So then you can take that knowledge, look at your own business, layer all of that in, multifaceted, and say, this is the route we need to go, and this is why I want to go on that route. And then still know that you may not be making the right decision, but you're doing it from a position of knowledge and strength. So for CEOs that are running your company, 
not understanding this over here, then I think you're you're diminishing the potential of what you could ultimately be. Now, in your guys' case, Craig, for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size of local bounty today, anything that you can share around number of employees or anything else that you're comfortable with? We have 250 employees, roughly. We have four facilities in operation, one in the Northwest, two in California, and one is up and running in phase one in Georgia, and we're, we're currently expanding phase 1A, and we're adding a phase 1B. One's three acres, the other one will be three acres right next to it. So that's that. We raised about $170 million, roughly, uh, 150 in our pipe, and our SPAC had about 20. So we had, a, for us, a successful event. I think the other thing, too, that I should mention is we have, we're in about 10,500 grocery stores, which is everything from Walmart to Whole Foods to Albertsons to Kroger. Uh, you're seeing our products all around the country. And the other thing I would let the listener know as well is there's increased demand for products that are grown more sustainably and, uh, and candidly last longer and are more fresh. Now, in your case, Craig, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of local bounty is fully realized. What does that world look like? What a fantastic question. I, I would say uh, the vision of local bounty is inevitable because the world is running out of food. Um, there are estimates that say in 30 years, Alejandro, not 300 years, in 30 years, we cannot support the food needs in the world. Okay. And we're seeing that already in certain pockets, given the supply chain and the Ukraine war and other things that have happened. So in my opinion, the vision of local bounty is inevitable. And I'll give you a quick story. When we rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange, I wasn't expecting to be as emotional as I was at this stage. I'm 60 years old and I've accomplished a lot. And when they played the video before we went out onto the floor to ring the bell, they had a story about Walt Disney and how he had went into his bankers with this little, the little thing that the little mouse moved a little bit. That was his pitch at that point in time. And now Walt Disney owns ESPN. I mean, my beloved ESPN, that guy with a little mouse owns ESPN, you know, 80 years later, whatever it is, the vision of local bounty, the concept of sustainability, the concept of better food that doesn't go bad. Food waste is 25% of the carbon problem that we have in the world. 25% food waste. It's estimated we waste 50% of the food we produce, Alejandro. How is that possible? How do we allow that to happen in, in our country? It's because we're growing products too far away from the consumers. That's the answer. And so Local Bounty's vision is to bring products that are delicious, that are healthy, that can help your family eat better, closer to the consumer, grown more sustainably at the same price point. And that vision is inevitable. It's going to happen. Wow. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine, Craig, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, maybe, you know, to that moment where you were a GE, you know, you, you felt that now, you know, you had like reached your, your ceiling, you know, of, uh, of learnings and that it's about time for you to, to venture out and, 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 and perhaps, you know, like go at it on your own with leadership roles. But 
if you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger Greg and and telling that younger Craig one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I'd like to think I've done this, but that advice would be, it can't just be one thing. It would probably be two or three things, but one of them would be just work harder than everybody else because there's nothing, uh, typically leaders can't get away with mailing it in. Um, so you, you're going to recognize if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a CEO, you're not going to be able to mail it in. So that that's just a given. I think humility is a huge part of leadership. If you can humble yourself in front of others and not always have to be the smartest person in the room, when you learn that lesson, you've learned a very important lesson in life. It'll help you in your marriage, with your kids, in your business. It'll help you all across the, the way. And then I think the final one is just never, ever lose your passion because passion is a force multiplier that just, you know, it just can't be substituted. And so for me, being passionate about what I'm doing at Local Bounty, I've been passionate about every role I've had. And if you're not passionate about it, just go find something else to do. I love it, Craig. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and, and say hi? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm on email, Craig at Local Bounty with an I.com. Uh, our website's out there, Local Bounty with an I at the end, B-O-U-N-T-I. Dot com. I'd love to hear from your listeners. I'd love to be helpful if I can to some of them. Alejandro, thank you for what you do, helping founders and entrepreneurs. It's really, it's, it's an awesome platform you've built. Thank you so much, Craig. It, it is really an honor to have you with us on the Dealmaker Show today, Craig. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.